All right, so uh, this is uh, Here You Are, Wausau. I'm here without Eric today. I'm your host, Dino. And uh, we invited along our friend Brian because it's spring here in central Wisconsin. And that irony will be lost on any of you who who don't live here because we got a foot of snow today after having no snow in a while and people cycling like crazy. Um, So we wanted to talk to Brian about cycling because he just started a new project related to that. So let's start with that. So what's the name of the new website? I did. Well, the, the, the new website is called Frugal Wheels. And so the, the premise behind Frugal Wheels is that I'm combining my uh, love of bicycles and my, lug, my love of frugality and uh, the, the search for financial independence. Yeah. And so what's cool is that I feel like bicycles are a really good way to uh, save a lot of money and uh, not, not waste it on gas and on, on maintaining your car. And uh, it's it's a good uh, it's a good tool toward uh, financial independence and frugality. So I, I wanted to bring up the financial independence part of that really quick, and we'll we'll end up talking about that more over the summer. But um, the summer that's hilarious. I have to blow the driveway after this. So well, so. well, well. You know, uh, in Wisconsin we have two seasons: con- uh, winter and construction. And so we're not done with winter yet. Yeah, just yet. yeah. So, and then, and then, pretty soon the roads will be closed um, for construction right. as soon as it melts. Yeah. So on the website, there's a lot of mentions of something called fire. Fire, yes. So what, just because I'd like to touch on that, just for my personal thing, because it was it was like uh, I'm on a board and we have a lot of acronym or abbreviations, and we mm-hmm. actually have to pay a penalty if we use an abbreviation and don't explain it. Oh, so nice. I don't know what fire is. Great. Well, I'd love to explain to you. So fire, for people who don't know, is it stands for financial independence, retire early. And so the idea is that if you can save up uh, 25 times your annual spending, and it's important to note that that is not income, it is spending. But if you save, if you're able to save 25 times your annual spending. You are basically retired as long as you have that money invested into a an index fund of some kind. So can can you just break that out mathematically? Because I was an English major. Yeah, me too, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I like to joke that I'm really bad. I'm really bad at uh, math. Almost all forms of math. Um, except for f- personal finance math, for some reason, I don't know if it's the motivation. Sure. But suddenly, suddenly, when it comes to personal finance math, I'm a wizard. Um, put a put a very simple algebra formula in front of me, and I, I've you, I got nothing. <laughs> but but uh, so the idea is, so you're saving up this 25 times your annual spending, and that allows you, based on something called the Trinity Study, which was done in 1989, that showed that. Um, with this amount, um, with a 4% withdrawal rate, so you're draw- withdrawing 4% of that initial amount every year, that your portfolio will survive because of compounding interest and um, you know just market growth and dividend payments and such. Basically, so basically, once you hit, once you hit that 25 times your annual spending, 
um, you're able to, you're basically retired. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that you don't work. Uh, some people choose to keep working. Some people dislike the cushion, you know, some people choose to work part-time or on a freelance basis or just do projects as they come up, but they like, but basically the idea is you're no longer tied to an employer. And so, uh, this, this study looked at, they, they also looked at a 3%, which is actually even safer, but 4%, um, I think, it, I think as I recall, it, it failed only 2% out of the, out of the hundred percent possible uh, in all scenarios. So what they did is they looked at past returns and took 30 years, 30 year chunks and said, well, in this 30 years, would it make it? Yes. In this 30 years, would it make it? Yes. And so that's, that's the basic idea. And there's, there's a lot to it. Um, the other, the other angle of course, is that you're working on trying to reduce your expenses and by reducing your expenses, you hit, you hit, you kind of hit the problem in two ways because you, uh, you, that number is suddenly less. So if you're spending less than 25 times, your annual spending is less if you're lowering your annual expenses. And so you, you get there faster. So you're also, because if you're lowering your expenses, but your income stays the same, you're also saving more. So that's the other prong. So that's why there's, it's a, saving, it's actually reducing your expenditures ends up being a two-prong approach. Wow. Okay, cool. So yeah, it's it's interesting because like I said, it's mentioned all over the place on the first, whatever there are, six posts or something. And I was just like, I know this, I know it has something to do with that, but I just wasn't entirely clear sort of where it where it came from and how it became, you know, an abbreviation. But that's really cool. Are you there yet? Um, uh, no, no, I'm not. Are you close? I would not say I'm close, but I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely on my way. Yeah, that's okay. Cool. Yeah, it's, it, uh, you know, given the fact that we had John before to talk about uh, the, the clean, the decluttering and sort of the, and that became a discussion about mindfulness it all really sort of like it's it's fun to see it all connect when I when I when we have you back because it all seems to connect rather cleanly, you know, in as as an observer of, of what you're talking about. You know, it really does, because uh, when we talked about KonMari, you know, so the I think one of the effects when you go through this tidying process is when you're getting rid of stuff, you think, well, I don't just want to go buy more stuff like like I kind of like having fewer things. And then you realize that you don't really need all that all that much stuff and I, I i don't know if you saw city pages today but i i wrote about the konmari technique and i i interviewed ben who thinks you know i got his contact info from you so i appreciate that and uh you know i ended up telling him about fire and you know the financial independence movement as well um i, surpri- I was surprised to learn that he hadn't heard of it because they tied together so well and I, I think he sort of is because he's he's definitely not spending you know everything he makes like you know since he's uh, kind of gone a minimalist route which the konmari tidying up plays into um i feel uh, you know I, I feel like he's sort of already doing it without knowing about it you know what i mean right and i i, I would bet that there's lots and lots of people who are doing it without knowing that it's a thing that they're doing, you know? There is. Yeah, my friend Bob in Stevens Point, um, he retired probably, I want to say his mid-40s. I don't know his exact age, but he based, he was a software, uh, or excuse me, a uh, microchip engineer for Intel in Portland. And one day he just decided he had had enough, and he's he, he just didn't want to work in cubicle land anymore, and he's, said and that's it i'm i'm done and he moved to wisconsin where he had been here before 
um, sold his Portland house and bought a uh, much cheaper house here. So of course he had a lot of there's a lot of retail arbitrage or real estate arbitrage that goes on that goes along with that, as well as you know the stocks that he had built up over time from working for Intel, and uh, he basically was able to retire and stop working. Wow, I love but that. Yeah, it's it's really something because you know when you start to sort of like when when I've started to become aware of we'll just say money you know mm-hmm. as as a whole. Um, one of the things that we look back on, uh, my brother and I both look back on very fondly, um, was uh, the idea. I mean, when we were born, and I don't know how my parents decided on this, but they they bought us some shares in a company called Gulf and Western, and over the years they they set it up where it was dividend reinvestment. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. so like you know, obviously the first ten years of our lives we didn't know what that all of that was but then all of a sudden you know like i remember taking a class uh at college for kids at uwmc as a kid that we learned all about the stock market you know Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden i'm like well now let's let's pay attention to whatever this gulf and western thing is that my dad talks about every now and then and so it was it's always been this sort of asset over the years that you know, I, I just never touched and just leave it alone. And it's, you know, split hundreds of times and it bought Paramount and it, you know, it's, it's a giant company that has acquired other giant companies over the years. And my, and what's nice is the stock value is just sort of continued to very, very slowly rise over the 48 years I've had the stock, the, you know, the 10 issue, 10 issues of stock. So that's kind of cool. That is cool. Yeah. So you might you might be close to fire yourself, huh? Yeah. It, it's yeah. And so part of that is just my inherent frugality with everything is just you know like I when my grandpa died, uh, I think each of us got ten thousand dollars, and all I did was put it in a CD and just and I just left it, you know. And I'm like that. I'm, I'm not touching that. And you know, other people are like we well, should take the money and go to Colorado or go to, you know, go to the ocean. I'm like, I don't know that that's what that money's for. And it's, it's that inherent, you know, like being a punk rock kid, there's that, there's always that moment where you're like, I've got to sleep in my car. And that's sort of this defining fear for me is, you know, the idea of coming back from Minneapolis and having to sleep in my car because I don't have enough money for a hotel. And that even as an older, that it's, it's an unrealistic fear now but it's the thing that sort of informs all, a lot of decisions. Like this is this is a condition I don't want to be in, and so I don't want to spend any of the money that I don't have to spend. Well, you know, the irony of being successful in the stock market is is that the the less that you do, usually the better. Oh and yeah. So, yeah. So if uh, a lot of people like to think that they can beat the stock market, but the the data is pretty clear that you can't. Unless you're Warren Buffett, and none of us are Warren Buffett, right? You know, yeah. that's like saying, you know, because I think a lot of people think like, oh, I could just do what he does. Well, you know, you could, you could, uh, you could say, uh, I'm going to do what Alex Rodriguez does, and I can just play baseball right. too. But it doesn't work that way. This is, you know, this is a people like him are very, very rare. For most of us, um, you look at if you look at um, they've done some studies where they looked at uh, ma- actively managed funds and compared them to just the standard index. And after 15 years, 85% of the of the uh, 
the managed funds failed to beat the index. And after 30 years, the number of uh, managed funds that actually beat an index is less than uh, less than one. So it's statistically non-existent. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many sort of, you know, times my dad said, you know, okay, we're going to put $1,000 in this fund. And how many, like all of them, they all over the years literally just disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, it, because part of it was me not paying attention because the, that money was out of sight and out of mind. And it was, I don't know what the hell my dad was thinking, but he, you know, I'm sure he meant well. And, uh, but you know, it was like, okay, you, you eventually get a letter from, you know, blue chip, whoever the hell fund, Hey, you know, (laughs) we've had to shutter your, your account because we're no longer in business. Well, that's a big part of it too. A lot of those just go plain go under. Yeah. 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 But even the ones that don't go under, they usually they usually fail to just beat the market overall. So it makes the most sense just to put your money in an index fund because they're low cost, you know. Whereas a lot of these uh, a lot of these managed funds will charge you like two percent, and you know that's coming right out of your your earnings. Whereas right. whereas an index fund, you know, Vanguard's total market index fund is like like point oh two per point oh four percent. I mean it's it's minuscule, you know. And I use uh. I use a platform called Wealthfront, which is uh, it's algorithmically managed, which is kind of cool because they do stuff like tax loss harvesting. Um, but that one's like 0.25, so it's still pretty good. It's not as good as the Vanguard one, but um, I kind of like I kind of like their interface, and um, I, I've been pretty happy with it. Sure. So just for fun, because it's it's a local thing. So who do you do your banking with locally? Locally. Um, well, let's see. So I was with Valley Community Credit Union for a very long time. Sure. And I recently left them only because they they closed down the Wausau branch, which means the closest branch now is like Cronenwetter. And I just I refuse to drive to Cronenwetter just to cash a check. Yeah. And they don't have the they don't have the app to where you can send it in the mobile deposit. Okay. And uh, I, I might go back to them because I'm with Connexus right now, and I have to say that I don't know if we'll get any trouble for this, but um, they I, I swear like they do everything wrong on the user experience that they possibly can. It's it's been a nightmare. So, but the cool thing is with with Wellfront. So I'm like it sound like I'm a shill for them or something. Yeah. But the cool thing is they also have a, a, a cash account that pays like 2.24 percent. And so uh, I have my emergency fund in in this cash account, or my, my emergency slash house fund, because I'm like, well, it's just going to sit there for the most part until I use it. It might as well earn a little interest, right? Yeah, that's true. So you're just sort of more comfortable in credit unions? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I don't know. I don't even. I, I was with Valley Community so long ago. I don't even remember how I. Right. I don't know if I just drove by one day and was like, I guess I'll go here. I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, a decade and a half at least. Um, and then Conexus, I knew someone that knew someone that worked there or something and they, it seemed like a good deal. And I don't know. Yeah. Isn't, yeah. Isn't that the way sort of, you know, this is our, our parents bank or this is our parents credit union. And at some point you just inherit these things. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. It's funny going back to what you were saying with your dad and with frugality kind of being a part of you. So I'm sure my dad like sort of like smiles and shakes his head at the same time because he was really trying to instill a lot of this stuff in me when I was younger. And I didn't, I didn't really get it. And even into my twenties, I was still spending quite a lot of money. 
And then I came across the blog, Mr. Money Mustache, and that really kind of changed my life. You know, and there's a lot of these like personal finance blogs, but I, I, I love Mr. Money Mustache because uh, he really has a way of making it very simple. And um, the, the, the phrase that I, I like that he uses is he says it's really about living a slightly less ridiculous lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like, kind of reminds me of, of uh, Marie Kondo, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, it's not like just throwing everything of your house out. It's just, you know, let's let's look at what's really important. And right. so Mr. Money Mustache talks about, you know, well, let's spend money on things that really bring us happiness, not like things we think we should have or things we just kind of want to have on a whim. But, you know, let's really boil it down to... Um, the things that are really important to us and the rest, you know, we can save that money because why, why spend it? Why buy a $40,000, you know, Range Rover or whatever the hell, you know, you don't need it. Just buy a nice sensible car. You know, they usually have, he usually advocates to use cars. I'm, I have, I bought my car new because I just use them forever. Um, but they also advocate not taking on debt for things, you know, other than a house. So most of the people in the fire movement usually advocate, you know, your first step is like pay off debt. Yeah. And, and then once you've paid off debt, then you can start saving. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I look at the car thing is is sort of, you know, kind of that bellwether thing where you just go, oh, yeah, you've you've got an Audi and we have about the same job. So what the hell are you doing? You know, right. but uh, like, you know, I, I firmly remember my first car was a Ford Pinto mm-hmm. in 19... 19- 87 and it was a terror i think my dad paid 50 dollars for it you know and eventually i i being an idiot child i literally traded it to a domino's pizza delivery guy for pizza at a party once (laughs) um you know and that's amazing right and then uh, the next car was a, a nissan sentra in like 1992 or 1991 that i owned all through college and probably all the way up until my 30th birthday where, you know, it had, it had long Mm -hmm. since crossed over 200,000 miles and had absolutely no discernible problems at like, there was no rust on the body or what I would still drive that car today if I, if I, you know, had kept it, but I, I gave, I sold it to a guy in the building I lived in and then I bought Oh, I bought the truck from my folks when they bought a new one. And so it was, it just been a, you know, sort of continuation of these long mileage cars. Like the last Subaru without back, I bought, uh, Andy Laub and I went and he helped me car shop because I don't know much about cars and he knows a lot about cars. And so mm-hmm. I pretty much just said, Andy, here's $10,000. Just get me a car. You know, and so he, he like, nice. it was awesome because he prepared like a worksheet of questions for me and essentially did an interview. And he's like, okay, now I know what car to get you. And I'm like, oh, that's, okay, that's good. Great. You know, and he's like, cause I would have never, you know, I would, in my head, what I was thinking about was I'd like a Ford Ranger pickup truck, you know, cause mm-hmm. I can, I can sleep in the back and I can go camping and I, you know, it's all wheel drive and all that stuff. And he's like, no, what you really want is a Subaru Outback. And I'm like, okay, let's do that then, you know? And so I bought one and, uh, it went to 200 and, or no, it's, well, it's still going. I, I sold it. Um, I gave it back or I gave it back to the universe at 220,000 miles and nice. it looked 
like 220,000 miles. <laughs> but, you know, it was, I always say it's going to be like Fred Flintstone's car where somebody's going to be able to sit in a seat with a steering wheel and the car will still be going, but there'll be nothing left of the body at all, you know. Well, I'm I'm hoping that my my Mazda three will. Oh, will get it's a beautiful car! Oh my yeah, god, it's great. You know, oh. it's uh, you know, I did a lot of research before I got this car, and I yeah. had, uh, you know, my my uh, my parents had, or my grand my grandfather had had passed, and he had um, he he had he had passed on some money to us, and my parents had paid off my sister's car, and they said, well, you know, I guess we'll we'll give you some money toward a new car too. And uh, so I did a lot of research, and the Mazda three, you know, is a great. It's a cool looking car, but also it's uh, it's it's highly, very reliable. And the nice thing about biking is because of my my biking during the spring, summer, and and uh, and fall months, and sometimes a little bit in the winter too. You know, I only put about seventy five hundred miles per year on it. Yeah. And so it ought to last. A, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, my my plan. My plan is that it'll hopefully last me until I'm uh, until I hit my retirement number, and then either um, then then I'll probably either buy an electric car or maybe I won't even need a car. Right. Yeah. By that point, who knows what'll be going on? Mm-hmm. You know. And hey, if you're still in Wausau, we might have public transit. Who you know? Maybe. <laughs> right. I'm, so well, yeah, it's it really is something to sort of. Be at like I really think right now we're at this point car wise where something significant is probably going to happen like in the next mm-hmm. say ten years. I think so. Where all yeah. of a sudden you know, like my my Forester that I have now compared to the Jeep that my mother bought, which is the same Jeep that Katie's got, the amount of technology that is standard in a car now versus in twenty eleven is a massively different amount of technology. Totally. I mean, I, yeah. I, I kind of presume that in 10, 15 years, I don't think gas gasoline cars will be gone per se, depending on the political winds, but I, I feel like electric is going to start, is going to be the dominant force. I really do. Yeah. So with the, so there's, I think there's two versions of that Mazda 3, right? There's one that's mm. a little bit lower and longer, and then there's the, what I think is more of a short, stocky back end. Yeah, mine's the short, stocky one. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. every now and then I, there's somebody in town with the that sort of sleek uh, version of the three, and I see it ar- around town from time to time. And what I think mm-hmm. it reminds me of is sort of the best of that Honda Civic, that, you know, the Fast and the Furious car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay. But, yeah, my friend Seth, who's been on the podcast – he bought his first car in like 15, 20 years, you wow. know, cause he lived in New York and he didn't need one. And then he was a bike guy. And so he lived in a small town in Pennsylvania and he, he put together some money and he bought himself a Chevy Sonic. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's one of those huh. things where, you know, once like my natural proclivity is to sort of, Oh, you're going to buy a car. Well, here, let me give you 38 different ideas of shit that I think is cool. And like he told me what, like to do what Andy did to me, you know, because that was a really remarkable experience to have somebody kind of ask me what I wanted and kind of figure it out. And so, you know, you do the same, you pass that along and like Seth, it was, it was that or the even small, there's a Chevy that's smaller than the Sonic and it in person, it literally looks like a clown car. 
Interesting. Yeah, like the tires seem to be as big as the tires for my lawnmower. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? How is that? a <laughs> You know, because my thing is always the same question for everybody. Can you sleep in your car? Like if worse comes to worse and you need to somewhere, can you sleep in your car? Because mm. having gone to, you know, it's a combination of watching Mad Max as a, you know, child and going to punk rock shows with my friends. It was always, you know, can we can we just sleep in the car? You know, get to a wayside and sleep in the car? Sure, that's what we can do. And, yeah, so it was every car is, is based off of that. And it's also based off an idea that, my ex Jackie and I came up with that uh, after college, after she finished grad school, we made a rule that we would only ever own as much stuff as we could fit in our cars. Hmm. And so it was, you know, being in college, that's relatively easy because, you know, you don't need to own a, a hose or, you know, a washing machine. But it's it's also that sort of intentionality about what you purchase and so she and i were like well we've moved a bunch of times in college and so let's not ever need to get a friggin' trailer because that's terrible you know yeah so. were, were you pretty happy in college oh thrilled yeah so this is an interesting interesting part about um there's sort of this always this assumption that as you start making more money you just want to increase your lifestyle and you want to have more stuff and um, and that's fine, you know. People, I, I've certainly done that. I think everyone's done that to some extent. But um, there's always this assumption that 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 that's always necessary and that that can't be avoided. So there, there's an interesting story. There was a gal in Chicago who, uh, you know, she right after college, she landed like her dream lawyer job. So she went to law school, um, landed her dream job at like this big, huge firm, you know, making ridiculous amounts of money. And she said, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy how I'm living now, like in this college lifestyle. She's like, why can't I just keep doing that and save the difference? And then I don't have to work for that long. And, you know, people told her, well, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, you end up spending more money and this and that. And she's like, well, maybe not. So so she, she kept living like basically her college lifestyle. You know, I mean, she probably had to buy new clothes and whatnot for, sure. you know, presentable. But. But for the most part, you know, she lived pretty frugally, um, just basically lived her same lifestyle. And uh, I think I think she only had to work like six years or something like that. And she was basically done. Yeah, it, it is. There's that thing where you just go, yeah, I don't need that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I I don't need to have a pool or whatever the hell. Like, I remember when Abe and Andy got a hot tub and I'm like, what the fuck is are, do I have friends who have hot tubs? Is that I immediately turned it around in my ego and was like, "Am I the kind of person who has friends who have hot tubs?" You know, and but yeah, yeah. you know what though, you want you want your friends to be the ones to have the hot tubs. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You can come yeah. enjoy it. Right. They can pay the bills on. It. Yeah, but it's that you know, it's that thing where you just go, "Okay, that's you know, nuts." I just sort of think that, right? You know, but at the same time, like like you're saying, yeah, I want somebody I know to have a hot tub. You know, I'd, I'd like I like the fact that my dentist and friend lives on the country club. I you know, that's that's a nice place to go visit, mm -hmm. you know, but it's you know, it it doesn't diminish my happiness by not living on the country club, you know. So, yeah, I find all of that kind of fascinating. My my boss, when I was at family planning, he really 
like he he had put it together over a lifetime and now is living what I you know people always use that bullshit phrase about living your best life and stuff and he and his wife you know they had a they put together a clear plan of what they value you know and so mm-hmm. okay this is what we value and then when we stop working we're not going to stop doing these things so we have to we have to build a life and so instead of like I, I always used to joke with him. So instead of bringing a lunch or going to, I mean, he was the executive director. He was making a hundred grand a year, and uh, so instead of going out to lunch or you know ordering in or whatever it was, he had a giant five gallon tub of uh, trail mix in the in his closet, and that's what he would eat. He would snack on for lunch. Wow! And it was like. Like, we would go out to, to lunch if there was a work reason to go out to lunch and stuff like that. Like, he mm-hmm. took me out to my most expensive meal ever in New York City mm-hmm. where four of us spent over $1,500, you know. Wow. And we didn't – and none of us drank. So none of that was on drinking. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So that was – that's one of those things where you go, yeah, that's going to – I'm glad the executive director used his credit card on that project. Cause, 100%. Yeah. That yeah, way yeah. I don't have to explain that. But – uh Um, so so he lived like he lived Mm -hmm. intentionally frugally he raised a daughter his wife was a vice president at ntc and then at midwest down in uh point and they their plan was uh, like their plan was always let's get out of america this shit's gonna go sideways Mm -hmm. and so what they did over the years is they you know did the research in the caribbean because Lon is passionate about windsurfing, like really passionate about windsurfing to the point where that is the that was the primary thing he wanted to do in his retirement, that he was going to build his life around windsurfing. So that's yeah. And so they found they uh, found the U.S. St. Croix of the U.S. Virgin Islands and they bought some duplexes down there. And so that's how they built their retirement. So they split time between the U.S. Virgin Islands and uh, Manaqua. He's got a beautiful uh-huh. house in Manaqua. But again, it's it's frugal. It's like there's no fanciness about it, except for his. He has the best garage I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and uh, but he, you know, he built a like a thirty thousand dollar pole barn garage, and it's amazing but again it's that thing where like it's all intentional like he's he was the you know the guy with the pencils and the rulers putting together a plan of what he wanted before he went to the contractor to build the damn thing and it's and it reflects that yeah i think uh, i want to go back to the hot tub too because what you what you just said really illustrates it's about you know it is about finding what's really important to you so, so here's what, have you heard of the term hedonic adaptation? No. Okay. So, so hedonic adaptation kind of describes how we, um, how we interact with new things. So, so let's say I go by that hot tub and, you know, the person comes and installs it this weekend and, you know, by sun, you know, by Saturday I have a working hot tub. Well, so Saturday, I'm going to think that hot tub is really fucking cool. Right. So I'm, I know I'm like, I'm going to have people over. I'm like so excited about it. You know, and then let's fast forward a couple months. You know, I see the hot tub. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I got a hot tub. That's pretty cool. Yep. You know, fast forward a year. I don't care about that hot tub. It's just part of my house now. Yep. Right. 
Um, and this this applies to just about anything except for the things that you really value. Um, so you have to, but you have to value them beyond that novelty. So you know, and because anything, any new thing you buy, you know, you will get really excited about it, but then it wears it wears off. We are very adaptable um, creatures. You know, we just we get used to bad stuff. We get used to. And good stuff. Even I was I was amazed when I, I did a story on a guy who developed prosthetic limbs for people, and I asked him, you know, like what what it was like for some of these people who lose limbs. And he said, he said it's really hard at first, but you know, talk to him a year a year from now, it's just that's just what their life is now. You know, I mean, th- there's always like a little bit of regret or sadness associated with it, but people get used to it. Yeah, I I you know it's that. Th- I agree with that, and I'm sitting here looking around my house, going, "Oh shit, all of all of this stuff," you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. I remember, you know, we always, it always sort of comes back to the things that give us, you know, like you're saying, the 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 sparks versus sort of the long term, whatever mm-hmm. heat metaphor you'd you'd want to use in that, and like, you know, people are amazed at uh, when I talk about. My CD, my music collection, because it's mm-hmm. mostly CDs. I mean, my my CD collection is. Um, I own more CDs than than the Wassa Best Buy and Inner Sleeve and Barnes and Noble currently have in their inventory. Nice. And it's and the thing is, like, uh, I would say seventy five to eighty five percent of those came from the fact that I worked all those years in music. So. A lot of that was free, but at the same time, like I have some insanely sparking joy purchases that I would never like, I would never give up, you know, and things that I always, I always come back to, I have, I bought a seat. There was a company a few years or 10, 15 years ago that put out live recordings um, called gold recordings of you know people like Frank Sinatra and Johnny Cash and sort of one-off concerts where for whatever reason they, these were you know not the not Johnny Johnny Cash at Folsom but it was you know Johnny Cash at a dinner theater somewhere and the recording is amazing and so I'm a big Frank Sinatra fan and uh, I they had uh, a live in Chicago. Uh, recording and I'm like well I'm gonna buy and I paid a shit ton of money and I came back home and I showed it to my dad and my dad's like let's listen to this and I'm like okay and he paused a little bit between there or in the middle of it and he and he started to get a little weepy and I'm like what you know what the hell are you crying for you you don't ever cry and he's like I was at this concert wow like what the fuck and he's like if you wait about 15 minutes he's gonna mention Joel Lewis the boxer being in the uh in the crowd the champ is there and sure enough, we put it on and like, like clockwork, my dad hit every beat in the concert Whoa. and I'm like, what the hell? And so it was, he went on to tell me like the, the story behind the thing and it matched up with the liner notes on the record. And I'm like, oh, I'm so lucky that I did not buy this, that I, you know, that I bought this so I can share this with my dad. And I yeah. like never took it home again. He got to, you know, he kept it. And then when he died, then I sort of reclaimed it. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where like my, uh, my insurance agent, every couple of months asks for, like, I keep an inventory of, of what I buy. 
And so, you know, he's like, can you just send me the new inventory? And every now and then uh, he emails me back and he's like, well, this is going to change the value of your CD collection. I'm like, okay, I don't know what the hell we're talking about, but all right. And one of those was an $8 purchase of a, of a CD from Weeby CDs back in the day. Um, it was a jazz CD of Charles Mingus at Carnegie Hall. And the thing was, there's there were only eight of those CDs ever produced. Wow. And so Weeby sold it to me for $8. And the value, the value of it 20 years ago was 1500 bucks. Oh, my gosh. And I went back to Oscar and those guys, and I'm like, hey – you guys should I I should pay you a whole lot more money for this. And they're like we didn't know we didn't get we didn't pay somebody that much money. And I went on to have the CD verified and all that sort of stuff, and it was a hundred percent authentic. But it's that, yeah, you know I don't I don't have a lot of whatever Corel China or whatever the hell people have, but you know I have everything Johnny Cash ever recorded. Hmm. Well, you know, I think about when I think about stuff, you know, I'll think about like my bicycle. So, yeah, yeah. my 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 mountain bike, it's a 29er specialized and I probably am never as excited about it as I was when I first got it. Sure. However, I still it's still very useful to me and I love it and it does what I need it to do. And uh, it's gotten me around all over Wasa and all over a bunch of other places, too. And uh, it's probably... It, it might have seen, well, let me think. How long ago did I have it? Yeah, I wouldn't say it had it's seen more miles than my car, but it's seen quite a few miles. And uh, so I think, I think so when we talk about stuff that maximizes happiness, you know, my bicycle definitely does that because it's a tool toward an activity and it's a tool for transportation. And so it serves an important purpose. And I, I think that's the difference than the thing that's just going to make you like happy for a second and then you're going to forget about it. Yeah. You know, like for you, it's that CD that you were able to share that concert with your dad and have that experience right. and that memory. Uh, those, those things matter for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so so, so really, then, uh, let's let's we should actually talk about cycling because that's we what should, we yeah. to do. So um, so. Just because I, I was sort of thinking about how I, I want to keep talking about cycling, you know, until next, well, if we have summer, until next winter. So, I you know, I sort of have a longer string of things I want to talk about. So tonight I just sort of wanted to talk about um, your origin in cycling. And yeah. uh, so, um, and for me it was like, it, it's always that idea of making, uh, I like to fall back on making lists. So... Can you, because I naturally sat and did this, can you, do you have a, could you make a list in your head of all the bikes that you own, owned in your life? I think I might be able to. Uh, I, I remember my first bike. Sure. What was that? My first bike was like this, uh, this red BMX. I don't remember what brand it was. Um, and I don't remember exactly where we bought it, but I'm pretty sure we might've brought it at Praney Ways. Yeah. Or I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that right anymore, uh, but I remember my dad. I remember my dad buying it and then thinking and then wondering if I was wondering if I'd be able to handle it or not because it was a little bit bigger than than a bike maybe should have been for me at that time. And uh, I don't know that I ever had training wheels on it. I think it was like I think it was kind of sink or swim. And I did manage to learn how to ride it. It took me a little a little bit. 
Um, but I did, I did manage to, uh, you know, I certainly crashed and had my, my share of bang ups, but, but I, I think I, I was able to ride it. And I think that was my bike until I believe. So then my dad, so, the, so another bike that wasn't mine, but was my dad's is, uh, I think my dad So most people have a midlife crisis and they go buy a motorcycle sure. and a leather jacket. Um, my dad decided to buy a 10 speed on a whim. And I remember it really stands out because I think I told you that my dad had tried to inst- instill frugality. Right. Um, he he was not one to make impulse purchase, but one day we were at the store and he just he just saw this ten speed and he said, "You know what? I always wanted one of these. I never had one. I'm gonna buy it." And uh, that sort of started his whole exercise kick. Um, he got really into long distance biking and running and snowshoeing and. Um, skiing, that's how I got really involved in Nordic skiing, which I still love today. Um, and so, so it might seem like his story, but it ended up becoming my story because then, uh, the rest of their family also got into, into bicycling. And I remember my dad buying a mountain bike and then he also bought me a mountain bike. Um, also not really in his character, but it seems like bicycles was his, uh, uh his his forte or his um achilles heel in terms of spending because normally he was not one to to be a big spender and certainly not just to buy us things you know out of out of blue that we didn't absolutely need and um uh, and so that that sort of kicked it off and we would go on all these like bicycle rides um i think we did the merrill colorama which is still still around today um and there's other other rides like that where you know they're not really races but you just you're supposed to go the the distance on a certain route or whatever, and uh, I remember that mountain bike was was something else because it felt like an adult mountain bike, and it felt like I had something really cool. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, it wasn't like a because it wasn't just like a Target brand or you know like right. a shop yeah, bike right. or something. It yes. was like a it was like a local bike shop. Bike, yep. You know, so it was like it was, it was fairly expensive at the time. Now now it would be a steal for a mountain bike. Um, I think it was about two hundred fifty dollars, sure. which you know nowadays that's you know a good mountain bike is more like seven eight hundred. So, um, so I remember that one, and then, and I think I had that one through high school, and and you know I think it I think it actually got stolen. I think I had it as oh yeah I had it as a young man too, and then and then it got stolen outside the Boston Center Mall when I was an employee. I don't remember. I don't remember if it was my sunglass job or. Oh no, I was worked at. I worked at Great American Cookie Company, and uh, I think I think I wrote it there. And I wasn't locking it because I was dumb. I was right. a dumb twenty year old. And, uh, and of course, one day it got stolen, and that was that. And then I didn't. I didn't have a bike for a little while. Um, not until I, I moved. I think I was living on the west side, and I decided. I decided I really missed having a, a bike, and I, I went and uh, I put some money down on a, a trek. 4800 which I uh, still have in my basement. I'm working on turning it into a single speed, but that kind of got me back into into bicycles. And then I bought, and then I got. I really wanted to get a road bike, like a fast road bike. So I got a Le Mans, which isn't sure. isn't like a racing quality bike, but it's pretty close. It was a good road bike. I still have that too. And then uh, a different bike I had. I found a, a Peugeot road bike, like from the late 70s early 80s um that someone was just going to throw out they had it had it out for a trash day and so I, I bought that one and i took it all apart cleaned everything up and put it back together i was pretty pretty proud of that, that i managed to actually get the damn thing back together um 
so that was kind of a learning a learning curve on um you know sort of a crash course and how to how to take apart and put together a bike of course you know modern bikes are much more complicated well not much more but complicated enough yeah they're complicated in a different way yeah exactly yeah and then um and then you know the last bike i i got was um was a uh, a twenty nine my 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 twenty nine er uh, specialized mountain bike which I bought used from uh, a coworker and uh, he was going to get a brand new. 29- oh, you bought it, okay? Because I was thinking about yeah. buying it. Oh, really? Yeah, but it, it's okay because I like he he and I had the con- I'm assuming it's past bike, it but is, uh, yeah. he and I started having the conversation because I think that bike is gorgeous. Like I really, it's, it's sort of. But I don't think everybody thinks that. I think it's it's sort of pretty in a way that, like only like I've only I've experienced like it's a solitary vision of what pretty mm-hmm. is, and and so when he said he was going to get rid of it, I'm like, oh, give me a couple of weeks to think about it. And so I thought about it. I'm like, no, I can't do it. I have a bike already, you know. So I'm not I'm not going to. And then oh, so you bought it? That's cool. I did, yeah. Yeah, I know it's funny because it's uh it's one of two bikes that I've gotten like a lot of compliments on my my Peugeot my Peugeot when I parked it I used to bring it to um I used to bring it to point with me when I was a student and I would I'd basically drive you know I'd drive down there but then I would use my bike to get all over town and sure. such and uh, someone actually left a note on my bike one day saying this is such a cool bike if you ever want to sell it let me know. Yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, it is just that, and that sort of thing. And, and that was the Peugeot. That was the green Peugeot and I had like yellow bar tape on it and I don't know, that was a cool bike. But no, I've had I've had it two or three times with, with that specialized too where I'll be you know, I'll be rolling up somewhere and people are like, Oh man, that is a cool bike. Yeah, it, it is really sort of fascinating. So for me it like I think I can go through and and kind of because we were like my friends and I, we were cycling kids. We were we were the nerds who uh, hung out at Freewheel and Cyclery and worshipped Marco, the mechanic. Oh. Hmm. And so it was like Bob was our all of our second parents, you know. And so cool. it was me and Todd Trowbridge and Steve Oswald and Steve Marshall. And uh, what the hell was that kid's name? <laughs> There's always that one kid. Yeah, anyway, yeah. So, and Dave Schwartz. And Dave's dad, uh, Les, is, was the toughest oh. dude. Like, we we never yeah. were as, in as good a shape as Les was in our entire youth. And it just killed all. Les was the standard for dude, us that all. Dude, that dude is a bad motherfucker. Oh, my God. He is oh, a my bad God. motherfucker. You know, and so, like, uh, so you know, we he all, still, huh? you know, he still rides up Red Mountain like, like every other day, right? Dude, he could beat the shit out of you and I together. And, I know. And the the other part of of Les is, and I'm because you did an article about him, right? I did, yeah. I mean, and I don't remember if this is in the article or not, but Dave and I grew up together, and Les has had some hardships. Like yeah. some serious, without talking about him, he's had like mm-hmm. real pain, like yeah, real, real pain. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know, he he really didn't want that to be yeah. in the story, and I was I, I respected that because 
I, I could tell it was a yeah. I it's mean, hard to lose to lose several people like that was yeah. just I can't I just can't imagine. But uh, so like it was we we all I don't know exactly. Oh yeah, sure. So at some point, um, one of us must have fallen in love with mountain biking, or it it was a thing. So we graduated in '89. And our mountain biking stuff probably started in 85 or so. And I remember, like, the first mountain bike I ever owned was a Panasonic Mountain Cat 4500. Wow. And uh, and my friend and Steve Marshall still owns it. Um, but over the years, like, we all sort of started, we all started doing local races. And just kind of as buddies, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and we got like relatively okay as local racers in the eighties and nineties. And then at some oh. point in the, in the late eighties, Bob from freewheeling said, I want to start a team and you guys are our team. And you could like, all we got was jerseys and he paid for our entry fees, but we felt like freaking Lance Armstrong. That's like, cool. You, you show up somewhere wearing matching clothes in 1988. You're just, uh-huh. you're, you know, and you're a, 18 year old kid you have no idea what you're talking about but you think you're the shit you know and uh and it was racing around here and under down and just sort of around everywhere and the big the big thrill was always to go to shaquam again and ride that bike race oh the fat tire yeah exactly Yeah. yeah and it was the sort of one of the the highlights of of my cycling in person career was one like we were at the height of our powers like sophomores in college and we're like that's it we're gonna go we're gonna go up there and we're just gonna dominate we've never dominated anything in our lives but we had convinced ourselves it was gonna be awesome and that was the year greg lamont showed up oh and like you know with his team like with the guys and we're like Mm -hmm. oh christ it's (laughs) like you know we're, we're all you know we'd ridden it enough times that we got to stand where sort of old timers or the team guys got to stand and then they just sort of wheeled greg right up front and in the middle and i just remember remember starkly in my head that i i rode with greg lamond for about a mile and then for whatever Mm -hmm. reason he decided that's enough and let's go and we never saw him again we rode as hard as we could and he just kept like he was just physically gone like (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, you just sort of think I can ride a mountain bike like I can. This is something I can do. I should I should be competent mm. enough. No, nope, apparently not. Not competent <laughs> at all. Like that. Do you, was... uh, do, do you remember Mark Parman? Sure. So I, do, I, I used to think I was like pretty fit. And uh, yeah. I went out I went out and rode uh, rode at nine mile with him and his wife. And I swear to God, they were for they were riding as if they were out for a joy ride. Yeah. Know, around the corner to get a ice cream or something and i was like i was like huffing and puffing i thought i was gonna melt into the over the handlebars and yeah. just be a puddle of goo like i just couldn't believe the level of fitness and you know they're they're both like professionals i mean right. uh, you know mark was on like the the pro development team for, for road cycling and he was him and i think him and his wife were both on the gary fisher team for a while i was like there's no way you know right. i i, I I skied with him a couple times too. And like, you know, he would bring these old wooden skis, which I don't know. Skis are a little bit different than bikes. Like, like there's a big difference in how much, 
how much how fast you can go with your skis versus you know a bike you know it's it, 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 there's still a difference but it's 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 negligible compared to skis and he had like these old wood skis and i was still struggling to keep up with this guy yeah you yeah know? parman and i got together once to talk about bmw motorcycles oh yeah he loves those too yeah because we i was I'd put on Twitter or Facebook that I was considering buying one because I had just watched that Ewan McGregor TV series long way round. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea, you know? <laughs> and and so then I, you know, Mark and I went to wherever Appleton or something. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to pay $40,000 for a motorcycle. So, right. You know, so uh, I have a good, I have a good Les Schwartz story too. Okay. Um, so my, so my dad got a big kick out of it when I wrote about Les because, um, my, 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 when my dad was in his like really big cycling phase, um, him and my mom, they had mat they had these like mint green matching green Schwins, which I just thought were the coolest thing in the world. Sure. And, uh, and so they, they used to go on these Wasa Wheeler rides. Okay. And one time my, my mom was really struggling up this hill and so she was falling behind and all of a sudden like she, all of a sudden she was like flying up the hill and she couldn't figure out why it turned out less less schwartz actually rode up behind her yep. like grabbed the uh, seat post with his hand and like basically pushed her up the hill yeah just yeah i he got uh he was the first guy to to do he bought a bianchi grizzly mm-hmm. and uh and it was the reason it was really cool because beyond the fact that the toughest guy that we'd ever known, uh, had one, it had a, it had a unique designed bottom bracket. And so what the, what the bottom, you used a grease gun to change out your bottom bracket. So you don't, you didn't have, like we would, we had gotten to the point where we were pulling apart our bottom brackets after every ride, you know? So four times a week, you know, we were just filthy. And, uh, this this Bianchi, all you would have to do is attach a grease gun to it, and it would shoot grease into the bottom bracket, and it would come out the other side. Huh. And I'm like, well, that's the coolest thing ever. That's also, fascinating. Also, the other thing that Les did, and I just remember it specifically, was um, he put, because it was a thing that we all copied him for, he put a pan eraser smoke on the back, and uh, that Anza porcupine, porcupine tire on the front and then at some point explain to us all why he did it and it was okay that's you know now we have to pay attention to our tires okay so we'll do that <laughs> now too thanks Les. but yeah so much of yeah and then one time we we held uh my friend steve oswald's parents the oswald family sort of is three different families or something and they all lived they owned the land that became greenwood hills Oh, yeah. And so at some point in, in college, we decided to have to host our own uh, mountain bike race just amongst our friend, just amongst the seven of us mm-hmm. and just essentially for bragging rights. And right. so we built a you know, we built an absolutely terrible mountain bike course through the through those farm fields. And then a buddy of ours said, hey, his little brother wants to you know, 15 year old kid wants to come along and, and do the race. And we're like, fine. And, uh, and he beat us all. Of course. Like, Fuck <laughs> you, you fucking dick. It's like and, when you, it's just like when you go to uh, Aladdin's castle back in the right. day, you thought you were good at street fighter. Right. And some like, some like nine year old Asian kid comes and just, 
just completely yeah. destroys you. Yeah. Just just trashes you. You're like you get like one hit and you're like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. How did what I I know how to do this? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh no. I like I remember like I remember the la the the sort of the last moment in college where I was still like using cycling as a as a big thing that I did. Like it was still I still did mountain mm -hmm. bike races, and I you know I still did tours and stuff like that. And, uh, and Jackie, my ex, uh, oh no, it was, so that summer I did the Wassa triathlon for the first time. And I, I wasn't a runner back then. Like I could swim mm -hmm. and I could cycle obviously, but yeah, I mean, I really just, I didn't even know what the hell running shoes were. That was just never a thing. And, uh, so the running just destroyed it. But later that year, Jackie's like, well, I want to, I'm going to borrow her stepdad's, uh, road bike. And she wanted to do the ride from Milwaukee to Madison. And I don't remember, it has a name and I don't remember what it's called. Um, yeah. But, uh, you could choose to do like the 50 mile sleepover and then go the next day if you wanted, or people were doing centuries mm -hmm. and she had never ridden a bike except to campus ever uh -huh. that i'd ever seen and she decided she she decided after she left that she was going to do this she was going to do the century like she had already started to ride and just said i'm going to keep going and uh mm -hmm. she won the century for her age group wow in literally an umbros a sports bra a t-shirt and uh a borrowed klein mount or borrowed klein triathlon bike Then i'm like well fuck this i'm done I, that's it. I'm never going to ride again because that's stupid. And then uh, the next year we did uh, my uh, my last mountain bike race was up in Shaquam again. She and I did it together. And again, she never ridden a mountain bike in her life, literally never ridden a mountain bike in her life. She was borrowing my uh, an old reflex mountain bike of mine. And uh, and she won her age group and beat me. And I'm like, that's that's all. I'm done. I can't. I'm not doing this anymore. So. Well, this this is a good this is a good chance to uh, segue into my my modern day philosophy of biking. Yeah. Like, so I used to be like really, and I got really, I really wanted to be a competitive cyclist. Sure. Um, not like you know, I, obviously, I'm not going to go to the Olympics or something. But you know, I wanted to like, I, I wanted to like try to win a race or something. And uh, I, I never achieved my dream, by the way, of having the matching jerseys. Oh, okay. When, when I when I was a non-traditional student at UWSP, I thought now is finally my chance. Sure. But the uh, the Those way the dudes club was serious down there, yeah. Yeah, the way the club was run, um, it was kind of like a few friends sort of used it as an excuse to fund their races. Yep. And like they, they would have this meeting and they let people come in and get you all excited. And then you would never hear from them the rest of the year until you'd see like, oh, they went to this race. So like, right. oh, great. You know, and they didn't tell anybody. So it was like these, you know, three or four people that were always going and all the people that showed up at the initial meeting didn't to get to go. But, uh, you know, even after that. So and Stevens Point has a great like bike culture. Yep. Uh, there's a really good uh, their, their bike club is awesome. Uh, they, what I liked about it is they. They had like a, they had three different levels, you know, there was like an, like a kind of easy level and there was like a, 
like an intermediate sort of beginning sport level. And that's where they started teaching you about drafting and, you know, how to ride in a pack, which is really great. You got to learn that stuff because if you're going to ride in a pack, you got to know what you're doing. You can't, you know, otherwise you have crashes. And then they had like, you know, they had, well, I think they had four levels because then there was one above that that was a little more advanced. And then there was like the Scott Cole group where, you know, those guys would just kill you. I mean, I, right. I went, I went on a day, I went on one of those rides once where, the fastest people weren't there and I still got destroyed. Um, at one point we were going like up hills at like 20 miles an hour and I was like, yeah, screw this. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so meeting, meeting Bob fish really changed my life because he, he comes at bi- bicycling from a different perspective. And now this, this is a perspective that I share too. Like, and the perspective is basically kind of what's the hurry. So the idea is like you can just enjoy biking for what it is. Like it doesn't have to be bigger, better, faster, you know. And so I think a lot of times people get into this trap of, you know, they start getting into cycling and they think, oh, this is fun. And then they think, well, you know, if I get that bigger, faster bike, then I can go faster. Right. And maybe I can enter this race. And then, oh, now I got to get these new carbon fiber wheels and, you know, all this and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes like this, like spending cycle slash now I got to train, you know, now I got to go out and I got to I got to get training miles in and I got to ride so far and so fast. And, you know, at some point it kind of just becomes work. Right. Like, why do I, why do I already have a job? Why do I need more work? And so, um, taking the bike fun philosophy it's like well i can just i can just use this bike to have fun and i I don't have to go a million miles an hour i can i can just say i can go take my road bike and go for a leisurely ride or i can a long you know a long ride in the country or i can i can get on my my mountain bike and just go hop over to uh you know hop over to work or hop you know go down to the farmer's market or something or you know, I can go. Uh, I can go take my mountain bike to the trail and go whatever the hell speed I want. Because who cares, right? I'm not trying to win anything. I just want to have fun. And uh, so that's the whole philosophy behind behind bike fun. It's like like this doesn't have to be. Everything doesn't have to be a race, you know. And uh, there's nothing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with racing because there isn't. You know, some people find that really fun. That's great. Um, but I think there's a whole lot of people who are kind of intimidated by that crowd. And, you know, even they're even going to be intimidated by something like with the Wasa wheelers where they're going like, you know, even their slow ride is still like 12 to 14 miles an hour. That's too fast for some people. So so I created Bike Fun Wasa. So there's rides where people of all abilities can come. Um, You know, our rides, we basically just go we just go as fast as the slowest person, which is usually not very fast. You know, I would I would say probably six to eight miles an hour at most. Sure. And uh, we do fun things like, you know, we go, um, we have uh, Gary Gisselman leads, helps lead our uh, mystery history tour every year. So we get a little history lesson. Um, we have our, our two miles to ice cream, which is a pretty popular one amongst the families. I get a lot of, uh, I get a lot of parents with kids on that one. And uh, we've done some other uh, crazy ones. Uh, we got, I, the one I want to do this year is uh, I'm working with Brianna Wright in the UW Extension office to do some kind of horticulture ride. We haven't worked out exactly what that's going to be, but um, I've gotten like so many comments about people who've just said like, wow, this is like, this is like something that's been missing in town. Like I, like, I, like I really want to ride my bike with other people that I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go a million miles an hour. Right. And, you know, I want to just take, use the bike to have fun. And so the cool thing that happens too, is people kind of learn like, 
they kind of learn how to ride in traffic because that's not that's not something that's always intuitive for people if they haven't done it. It can be a little intimidating, but um, there's there's something about a comfort of a big group, and we've had some pretty good ones. You know, we've had um, we did one early in the year that was I think we had about 26 last year, and my very first ride had close to 30. So we've had some big groups, and there's a lot of strength in that. I think people get used to used to the idea of riding on the road and it gives them a little more comfort to have other people around it. Oh, sure. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's really, you know, right on because yeah, I, you know, thinking back to my first bike, like I, it was biking has always been a thing. So my parents had, uh, each of them had a road master bicycle and my mom had, uh, a seat on the back for my brother. Like mm-hmm. I, so my parents rode bikes and, uh, and I remember we used to, in our neighborhood at some point, uh, it was during the Greg Lamont thing. My dad's like, you guys should have bike races. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we'd get all the neighborhood kids together and sort of plot a, a road course and we would all, we would race. And it was, it was always like riding in a group of people was so much more fun because Mm -hmm. there's once you sort of learn how to do it especially on the road um i don't i don't think this applies nearly as much off-road but there's there becomes this sort of flow where oh i guess we're moving over to the left side of the road and nobody really (laughs) knows how that decision gets made but you know all of a sudden we're just going to move okay well i'm going to go with everybody else you know and so mm-hmm. it, it really becomes this sort of, I always thought that riding together in a group was a great way to kind of get out of your own head. It is. I think so, too. And, uh, you know, the other thing I think is important about Bike Fun Wasa and the Bike Fun philosophy or the pokey pedal philosophy, as, as Bob would say in Stephen's point, um, you know, the, the, the important part is that a lot of times when when bicycle advocacy happens it happens from a place of like someone who would be comfortable with the wasa wheelers or or who does race and i think i think a lot of times the people that get forgotten are the ones who you know maybe they're only going to go like six or eight miles an hour um you know grandma grandma on a bicycle you know when you when you design infrastructure um for bicycles it needs to be it needs it needs to work for her too like it can't just be the you know the 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 fix the the twenty year old with the fixie who's like oh I right. can keep up with traffic so what's the big deal well you know grandma grandma on her uh, on her beach cruiser maybe can't keep up with traffic yeah. so you know stuff has to be designed for her too and I think that voice you know because like just about every area now has like some kind of bike club like the Wheelers or the Heartland Club in Point and that's great I'm definitely not knocking it I, but i think there's a missing niche of you know the 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 bike fun group or the the pokey peddlers you know I, I think they have to have a voice too and so i think that's one of the i feel like that's one of the important points of of having this is that they can feel empowered too and so anybody who any any person on a bicycle you know has that voice sure so then i, I want to wrap it up and i and i was thinking about how i wanted to wrap it up but i i do i did have a specific thing Um, so do you remember the first bike you purchased where you thought I am, I'm buying, I am buying a bike. Like this is, I'm not, I'm not buying something from, from fleet farm. This is like a bike shop bike. 
Yeah, I think, and you're saying one I bought yeah. myself with my own money. Yeah, yeah, definitely that Trek, but also that Le Mans too, because it was, I don't know, that Le Mans was pretty cool. I still have that too. Yeah. Like, it was something about like, now I have a road bike, like this is cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, that like, do you have, do you know, you know Gary Barton, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Have, I don't know if he's still like this, but at one point he, he probably had $50,000 in biking stuff in his basement. Wow. Like he had a serious addiction and, uh, yeah. And I always, I always got a kick out of it. Cause like he, he rode as much, he, you know, it wasn't one of those things where it's like, Oh, rich guys got a lot of bikes. No, he, he rode all of it, you know, mm-hmm. and he, mm-hmm. you know, he had a relationship with a bike builder, which is a mechanic and he, you know, they would build bikes together, you know, using parts and frames and stuff. And he was, he was that guy. And it was just, I always thought it was super cool, you know? Yeah. Um, so speaking of Scott Cole, yeah, you know him, right? Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. So he was on the, he was on the adventure Two Twelve team for a while. And okay. I was, I, I kind of made some friends with, uh, the leaders of that team and I know Michelle was one of them, and I can't remember the husband's name, but they both they also owned um, Adventure, uh, the Adventure 212 uh, Fitness Center. Sure. And I went to their house for a, they invited me to their house for a party one time after um, after one of their one of their races, which was a little I don't I'm not really sure why they invited me, but because I was like the only one there who wasn't on the team, it was a little bit awkward, but not really good. But they, you know, they had a pretty, uh, they had a pretty swanky house. But the bike garage was like, it kind of looked like, you know, someone who's like super into like racing cars, yeah. like the kind of garage they would have. Except sure. it was all about bikes. I was like, this is cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I this kid I grew up with, Steve Marshall. He, uh, he works for. He's the head of biochemistry for Cargill, and his well, wife Sandy is the head of mathematics for Monsanto. Like they have a <laughs> mathematics department. And so one, I always like to joke being, you know, the left wing nut job that I am. I'm like, Hey, you guys <laughs> literally work for the axis of evil. Thank you. Nice job. <laughs> but, uh, so they've never had children and, uh, they've been together since we were, it's, it, it was Steve's first kiss, like when he was 19. And so wow. they've been together since then. And they do uh, triathlons recreationally, like Iron Ironman distance uh, triathlons. That's their recreation. Like they travel around the mm-hmm. world to do friggin' several Ironmen a year. <laughs> and so, I remember he sent me a picture. He's like, "I think I fu- I think I bought my unicorn bike." And I'm like, "Great, buddy, because everything you own is ridiculous." <laughs> <laughs> but he bought uh he finally had made a custom made felt triathlon bike. Mm-hmm. And I think the fr- I think he told me the frame was $27,000. And I'm like, God. "Oh, Steve, what the shit? My car is $27,000." You know, well, and it's it's yeah. one of 100 bikes that he has in his garage. Like he still has like as we would get rid of our bikes as kids, you know, when we would all sort of fall out of of biking and stuff, we would, you know, Steve, you want? I'm getting rid of my reflex. Do you want it? He's like, Yep, I want it. You know, and so over the years, he just he's never thrown any of our bikes away. And wow. I think maybe part of it is he's thinking we're all going to get together and ride again, 
or you know he just can't stop himself like he has he has my panasonic mountain cat 4500 he has my reflex with bio ace components on it oh yeah the bio ace yeah i had a at one schwinn at some point released that paramount brand where they wanted to go instead of going cheaper they went to higher end racing bikes i had a schwinn bike Hmm. and then John Tomac had his own line of bikes and I and I know that I bought one of those. And then the last the last bike I bought before this one um was a GT Zascar, which I adore. I nice. I just and it was just it was simple. I bought it used off a buddy of mine and I it was when I was at Scott Street and much thinner and I and I rode it to work every night and I just loved it. It was yeah. yeah. Yeah, and by the way, I don't, I don't know if a lot of listeners might be aware of this. If they're bike people, they might or not. But those, they they, they might be like thinking, "What Panasonic?" But actually, Panasonic yeah. made some badass bikes. Oh yeah, oh. like I don't I don't think people realize they actually made some really quality bicycles. Oh yeah, it was yeah, and it was it was our bike shop was freewheeling, you know, which is which was down the street from the Woodson YMCA, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, it was the, there was this guy like I just the craziest shit I remember. Marco never had never put grips on his bars. He would just wrap them with duct tape. I'm like, what uh. the fuck? That sounds terrible. This is mountain biking, man. And then I remember when uh, bar ends happened. Oh yeah. And then all of the weird variations of bar ends that happened as a result. Like, I remember John Tomac rode off rode mountain bike races with drop handlebars. Jesus. And I'm like, okay. And and the thing was, like, he literally, one year, it was Tomac and Ever Overend were the two guys. They were arch rivals with each other. And they literally split the year. Ned won half and Tomac won the other half. And it was just this amazing thing. So, yeah. But anyway, I got to get going because we got to, I got to move the snow yet. Shit. Um, But yeah, I want to talk a lot more about cycling this summer. So we're going to try to have Brian back every couple of weeks and uh yeah so thanks for doing this man yeah thanks you know i appreciate it so now again what's the name of your blog your new website the new website is uh frugalwheels.com cool all right so we'll send some people there thanks for doing this man all right yeah thanks dino